from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. This is Religion for Life. My name is John Schock. Today, I continue my series on early Christian origins. I've been interviewing scholars of the New Testament and early Christian history in regards to how to read these texts critically, to read them sometimes against the grain, to not take them at face value, but to look behind the scenes and to learn how these early Christian authors used rhetoric to shape their story. Today, we're going to look critically at the book of Acts. My guest is Shelley Matthews. She's Associate Professor of New Testament at Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas. Before teaching at Bright, she taught for 13 years at Furman University. She's an ordained Methodist minister and served in the parish for three years in North Dakota. She was the co-founder and served for six years as co-chair of the Violence and Representations of Violence Among Jews and Christians section of the Society of Biblical Literature, and she currently serves on the steering committees for SBL sections on early Jewish-Christian relations and ancient fiction and Jewish and Christian narrative. She's also on the editorial board of the Journal of Biblical Literature and a member of the West Star Institute. Her research interests include feminist biblical interpretation, feminist historiography, early Jewish-Christian relations, and Paul in the second century. In 2010, she authored Perfect Martyr, The Stoning of Stephen and the Construction of Christian Identity, and the book we are discussing today, published in 2013, is The Acts of the Apostles, Taming the Tongues of Fire. She's speaking with me via Skype from Fort Worth. Welcome, Dr. Matthews, to Religion for Life. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. I first met you at uh, a Westar meeting, that's the, the Jesus Seminar, a couple of years ago in uh, Salem, Oregon, when Westar was honoring, uh, at that time, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, and uh, an honor that was long overdue. Uh, and Dr. Schusler Fiorenza ha- had been somewhat critical of the Jesus Seminar, and I recall even at that meeting a little bit of, of tension. Um, and I think that tension has to do with how one goes about interpreting scriptural texts historically. And I bring that up because you talk about methods of interpretation in your book. And, and I was wondering if we could perhaps open up that conversation just by talking about uh, the significance of the work of Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, with whom you studied at Harvard. Uh, just to put it in general terms, what did you learn from her? Ah, yes. Yes, no, uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, there was a bit of tension, uh, not a lot of tension, no. I, I don't think, but some tension at the uh, West Star uh, meeting when they honored Elizabeth Schusser-Furenza. I would say um, that uh, the feminist methods that she uh, utilizes uh, have something in common with the mission of the Westar Institute, namely the Westar Institute has a mission of uh, increasing religious literacy uh, and uh, making more people aware of, of biblical interpretation and how it works. And I, th- I think that that's something also that is part of Elizabeth's uh, feminist commitment. I would say the place where there is some difference or tension is that uh, the sort of feminist biblical interpretation uh, that Elizabeth Schusser-Furenza engages in and uh, that many of her students, including myself, also uh, uh, take up is more explicitly conscious of the ethical consequences of our biblical interpretation. Um, that is, uh, Westar, I think, is more devoted to uh, what I would say a typical or mainstream historical critical uh, approach to biblical interpretation, uh, 
which assumes uh, that we should treat the Bible like any other book. That is, we can subject it to critical methods, uh, literary methods, historical methods. Um, uh, but what uh, Elizabeth brings, or what feminist biblical interpretation brings to the table as well, is a very explicit consciousness that um, uh, there are political and ethical consequences to how we interpret the Bible. And therefore, we should always think uh, when we raise questions about biblical interpretation, uh, about questions such as who benefits from this uh, interpretation, uh, who might be harmed by this interpretation, how can we address the interpretation or the biblical passages uh, that uh, uh, contribute to human flourishing, how can we flag biblical uh, passages or biblical interpretations uh, that do not contribute to human flourishing and so forth. So I guess it was, again, it, I think it's a difference that um, uh, can be worked through. And I, I think that there are Westar people who probably are also interested in this ethical and uh, the ethical aspects of interpretation. Uh, but I think that feminists tend to be more explicit about that commitment to ethical interpretation than, than standard mainstream biblical uh, scholarship has been. Well, you know, part of this interpretation is really where where the interpreter sits. I, I'm, as we're talking, an uh, uh, interview I did here was with Frank Schaefer, a Methodist minister who has just lost his uh, ordination, uh, his ministry, because he uh, uh, performed a marriage for his uh, gay son and his partner. And that is all about biblical texts and how they're interpreted and the power <laughs> uh, uh, and the power relations in the in the uh, contemporary world. So you can't really ignore. Uh, contemporary power relationships when we're interpreting these old texts. Is that is that a part of, um, of what yes, I get no, from what exactly. you're saying? I mean, yes, no, thank you. Uh, and that's actually a good example, uh, one that I reflect on at least briefly uh, in the introduction. But uh, yes, uh, what the Bible says about sexuality and what we say that the Bible says about sexuality and then how uh, to think about what you know, our biblical interpretations about sexuality and uh, what impact they should have on our modern ethics is a huge uh, point of discussion and contention. And I think that's a good example of a place where uh, we cannot just take a neutral pose and uh, put on some sort of scientific mm -hmm. stance that, you know, this is what the Bible says about sexuality, uh, as if we could do that without it having consequences. Thank you. That That's uh, part of uh, what I would say a feminist approach also brings to the table. You use a, a label for this approach of interpretation, the rhetorical ethical approach. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how that works? Uh, yes, the rhetorical ethical approach, I, I would say it's rhetorical in at least two ways. First of all, it's rhetorical in recognizing that every biblical text uh, most obviously the letters of Paul, but even the book of Acts, even biblical narrative uh, and poetry, every biblical text is a rhetorical product. That is, it is a, a text that is written to persuade. In the case of the book of Acts, for instance, um, I would argue that the author of the book of Acts uh, is not just giving us the facts or or some unvarnished truth about how the Jesus movement began and spread, but that uh, the author of the book of Acts is trying to persuade us with a particular 
uh, rhetorical narrative of how Christian origins began, which includes and highlights some things and which idealizes some aspects and which masks other aspects. So that is one aspect of the rhetorical nature of the criticism that, that the, author, the ancient authors are engaged in rhetoric. I would also say that modern biblical scholars uh, would do well to recognize that our arguments are also uh, rhetorical arguments. That is, I, as an interpreter of Acts, have not laid bare in any positivistic way the truth of what this book means, but that I have marshaled a series of arguments trying to persuade my readers that these are the parts of Acts that really matter, that matter for our time. Uh, and that's where the ethical component comes in, is, is that we uh, modern interpreters in constructing our arguments about the Bible should be concerned uh, with making a case that these are the aspects of this text that matter and that, you know, we should make the case also about which parts of the text or which kinds of interpretations uh, are harmful and which kinds of interpretation are beneficial insofar as we can ascertain them. So I guess that's the rhetorical ethical approach in a nutshell, uh, thinking uh, that both the ancient and the modern interpreter are trying to persuade and that our uh, our interpretations have ethical consequences that we need to be alert to, that we can harm people uh, by our interpretations of the Bible, or we can uh, help people to flourish uh, by our interpretations of the Bible, and we just need to be aware of that. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Shelley Matthews. She's the author of The Acts of the Apostles, Taming the Tongues of Fire. I really don't know how to classify acts, and, and you talk about that a little bit in your book. Um, is it fiction? Is it a romance? Is it historical fiction? Is it propaganda? Uh, how do we understand the genre, and how important is it for us to get it at least close? Uh, yes, good question. In terms of the questions you ask, is it fiction? Is it history? Is it propaganda? I would say yes. It's all of those <laughs> things. And perhaps if, if what I would say is that acts is an ancient historical text, meaning that it is a sort of history, but it is a history that is very, very different from modern understandings of history. Um, I would, uh, to summarize that, I would say it is, it is different from modern understandings of history in two ways. Uh, first of all, Ancient history, unlike modern history, uh, values imitation. That is, Acts wants to tell us uh, uh, very much that his group is like groups that, that readers could recognize, uh, previous uh, groups uh, that could be recognized. And so ancient history is concerned with imitating previous models. And then I would also say that ancient history is very concerned about idealizing, that is, constructing ideal portraits of a group for the purpose of edification. Uh, and so it's historical in that it is referring to historical people. Paul was certainly a historical uh, person. Jesus was certainly a historical person. Uh, but it is not as concerned, as, as modern historians are, with getting the facts right. Um, Acts uh, is a kind of history that wants to edify wants to entertain, that wants to persuade. And so getting the facts right is very far down on the list of this author's concerns, I would say. But he wants us to get a certain understanding of how the story of Jesus and Paul uh, 
should be understood, right? He wants to present uh, Paul in particular uh, in a certain way, and and um, he's like a, almost a literary character, really, Paul, uh, as he's yes, reporting about yes. him. Yes, yes. No, I would say that that Acts uh, is very concerned to idealize Paul, and mm -hmm. so yes, he is a Paul is much more a literary character in Acts, rendering the author of Acts therefore portrays Paul as a very manly figure, if you will, as a very heroic figure, as a very uh, strong figure. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, the ability to speak well in front of a crowd in the open air was regarded as a very, very um, uh, athletically uh, challenging uh, enterprise that required a lot of strength on the part of the speaker, a lot of strength, a lot of education a lot of ability to think quickly on one's feet, uh, a lot of muscles actually just to endure the weight of the heavy toga and uh, the need to project one's voice uh, without any amplification uh, in the open air. And so uh, public speaking was regarded as, uh, as Maud Gleason, the classicist says, as the calisthenics of manhood. Um, and therefore, uh, the way that... Uh, Acts portrays the Apostle Paul is as this sort of athlete who can uh, speak eloquently in all sorts of situations at the drop of a hat, who mesmerizes his audience um, with his powerful oratory. And I would say, yes, that that is an idealization of the Apostle Paul uh, if we compare it with what he says of himself in his own letters, in which he highlights his weakness, uh, his uh, modest speaking ability. Um, and his bodily suffering. So I would say that's one example of an instance in which Acts, while a ancient historical text, is much more concerned with idealizing its protagonist uh, than with uh, giving us historical data that a modern historian would expect. And he uses uh, stories uh, from from the ancient tradition and kind of retells them with Paul as the character, right? So Paul does kind of these heroic escapes from jail and whatnot are, are similar, what, literary tropes? I guess. Is, that, is that what yes, I got you Yes, no, said? that's a good one. I mean, and, and the classic example here, for instance, is when Paul speaks in uh, Athens in front of the Areopagus uh, the author of Acts is trying very hard to signal that Paul is like Socrates in this case. That is, Socrates is the most famous of all philosophers in Athens. He was uh, famously charged uh, with uh, corrupting the youth by teaching them about foreign divinities. Uh, and there is the Apostle Paul in the same situation, uh, charged with uh, corruption by preaching about foreign gods. And his response is uh, to answer with a very uh, philosophically-minded uh, 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 discourse in front of the Athenians. And again, I would argue that this is probably not a historical speech. It's not likely that Paul spoke in this manner in Athens, uh, but that the author wants to communicate very much that Paul is like Socrates in this scene. Um, that is, in the same way that Socrates uh, was known for his eloquence, that in the same way that uh, Socrates was unjustly charged and um, was uh, uh, killed unjustly. Uh, so uh, the author of Acts wants to communicate that Paul also spoke uh, with oratorical finesse in front of an Athenian jury uh, in the face of false charges. 
and so this all serves the purpose of Acts wanting to tell the Christian story in a certain way. What, do, what does Acts want to tell us? Thank you. Yes, uh, I hear I look for a clue actually by going to the preface of the third gospel, that is the gospel of Luke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do believe those prefaces uh, between Luke and Acts are connected. And uh, in this gospel, uh, the author of Luke addresses a man whose name is Theophilus, uh, loosely translated, lover of God. And uh, he wants to tell, you know, to tell the story of uh, this movement, uh, the Jesus movement, so that Theophilus might know the truth Uh, or the surety, the security of the events that have been uh, unfolding in their midst. Um, We don't know for sure whether Theophilus was a historical person or whether the name is a symbolic name uh, that addresses, you know, an ideal reader like Theophilus. But we know that Theophilus, uh, whether historical or as an ideal reader, is uh, an elite reader of Acts, an elite patron. He's called Most Excellent Theophilus, which is a title reserved uh, for uh, someone of high standing. In the book of Acts, this title, Most Excellent, is reserved only for governmental officials. And uh, from this preface, I conclude that the author of Acts is trying to uh, cast a picture of the origins of the Jesus movement that... uh, would be approved of by an elite character. That is, that would uh, be reassuring to this elite character or uh, to this elite reader uh, that uh, the Jesus movement was orderly, uh, it did not disturb the Roman order, and that you could become a follower of the Jesus movement without uh, completely compromising uh, your... uh, sensibilities as a Roman citizen or as a, you know, as a member of the established uh, social order. Uh, so I would argue that that, that Luke uh, is composing both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts with an eye to reassuring an elite reader or someone of the elite class that, uh, that the Jesus movement uh, does not unsettle uh, the established order. And it seems that he almost changes history altogether. I mean, if Jesus was anything, wasn't he? He was executed by the Roman Empire. And yet Acts, uh, as you mentioned again and again, puts that blame on on the Jews. Uh, Yes. No, I would say that, I mean, the author of Luke Acts is walking a very fine tightrope and is in some ways, you know, a genius in terms of the decisions uh, that he makes. Uh, But he is trying to reassure readers uh, that if they become part of the Jesus movement, they are not becoming part of a movement that upsets the social order. But that's a very tall order uh, for the Mm. author... uh, to deliver because, of course, yes, Jesus was crucified as uh, uh, as a um, yes as a subversive, uh, in, and uh, it, quite likely the uh, audience also knows that Paul uh, was uh, martyred as well. That is, was also executed uh, by Romans. And so, to tell the story of the Jesus movement as one that does not unsettle uh, Roman order when uh, so many of the facts, uh, you know point in other directions is uh, is quite a task. Uh, and um, I would say that's part of the reason that we can read Acts and see traces of this more egalitarian, this more subversive mo- movement um, 
uh, that, yes, I would argue is part of the earliest layers of the, of the Jesus following group. Um, uh, Acts uh, makes a reference to that sort of subversion, uh, but then papers over it and, and tries to insist that no, those are false charges. That is, the, the followers of the way are, are charged with turning the world upside down, are charged with being subversive. Acts acknowledges that, but then responds, no, no, those are false charges. Uh, but if we, and what I was trying to do in my book is to help readers read against the grain and to see that if there are false charges, or if there are these charges of turning the world upside down or of uh, subverting Roman order, uh, that, that suggests a history in, at, in which at least part of the Jesus movement was engaged in these more revolutionary activities or unsettling activities, if you will. So part of that is is, is what's what's being unsaid. Uh, Shelley Matthews is my guest. She's the author of Acts of the Apostles, Taming the Tongues of Fire. And that subtitle of your book, Taming the Tongues of Fire, uh, you're talking about uh, the tongues of fire at Pentecost. And the taming part, as I, I read you, is the part of Acts' rhetorical strategy of controlling um, these fire things bursting out all over the place that people might do uh, disorderly kinds of things. And we need to have, you know, a guy, a guy uh, who's in control of this movement. Is that part of Acts system? Yes. I just want to thank you for being a very insightful reader because you've got it exactly right. Um, that is uh, the overarching uh, thesis of my book and from which the subtitle is drawn is that, yes, uh, the early Christian movement or the early Jesus movement um, was a disorderly movement, was, I would say, in, in part at least, a utopian movement, an egalitarian movement, a movement that challenged the social order, that challenged um, the Roman Empire, uh, and uh, uh, Acts, uh, the author of Acts um, wants to tame that down, wants to make the message of the Jesus movement more palatable uh, to people uh, with more establishment sensibilities. So yes, he's trying to tame the tongues of fire by saying, oh, it, was, it wasn't that disorderly, it wasn't that subversive. I mean, there were tongues of fire, but they were actually um, intelligible. Uh, there were tongues of fire, but they descended in order, and um, there's only one meaning to them, and they won't be disrupted again. Uh, but as I also say, I mean, I, I like the metaphor of the tongues of fire, because what I like to say is Luke is trying to tame the tongues of fire. Uh, but fire is an unwieldy uh, material, if you will, and therefore uh, he doesn't succeed entirely, uh, which is what makes the book of Acts so interesting to me, uh, because we still can see uh, some of those flames bursting out, and we can... Uh, latch on to them, if you will, uh, in trying to uh, raise up in our own time uh, ways of subverting the social order, uh, ways of pushing toward egalitarianism or toward a utopian vision. You, you write uh, near the end of the book about uh, survival literature. I thought that was really insightful regarding acts that... Um, how do you survive in a violent empire? Well, you kind of take shots at other minority groups. Is that the relationship that you see between Acts and uh, the way he, uh, or or whoever the author is, writes about uh, the Jews as if the Jews are like bad, uh, the Jews that don't believe in Jesus are bad, and those yes. that are... Yes, exactly. As you have uh, framed the question, John, I would say that 
the author of Acts is trying to carve out a safe space for followers of the way uh, so that they are not persecuted or ostracized uh, by uh, governmental officials. And his solution for doing that is to deflect attention uh, by uh, portraying his group as a bunch of outstanding or upstanding citizens uh, under empire and then saying, look at those Jews, uh, those Jews who don't believe in Jesus. They're the ones who incite mobs and they're the ones uh, who engage in dishonorable behavior and they take uh, sacred oaths to do dishonorable things um, and they're always causing trouble and stoning people and you know going outside of the law. Um, that, I argue, is an unfortunate byproduct of what is probably Luke's primary concern, which is to make a safe space for his group. Uh, and of course, the consequences of that throughout history have been long and hard in the sense that uh, those portraits of non-believing uh, Jews, that is Jews who don't believe in Jesus, as malicious and you know having bloodlust and all sorts of uh, very negative stereotypes, uh, became part of Christian self-understanding as Christians came into power and as they stayed in power and those negative stereotypes had uh, severe negative consequences uh, once Christians wielded the sword themselves. I would argue that the author of Acts himself did not wield the sword, that is, it probably had uh, could not have imagined the situation that would come to be where his uh, stereo typically negative portraits of hostile, violent Jews uh, became uh, part of justifications for doing violence towards Jews, physical violence. Uh, so yeah, I would say that's uh, one of the unfortunate uh, parts of this book that is incorporated into our sacred Christian scriptures. Our sacred Christian scriptures. I just want to take a second and talk about that for um, because I think that it's sometimes hard for those um, who revere sacred Christian scriptures, to be able to look at them very critically, uh, to recognize that they actually have hurtful messages in them too, and you just can't take them at face value. And sometimes that part of the rhetorical ethical criticism, uh, it might be hard for people to take, um, to, to be able to, wait a second, I've got to look at my own texts and my own practices here. Yeah, no, that is a really good question. It's a really good problem. I would say that is a place, though, where the sort of feminist approach to biblical interpretation does overlap with the sort of ideals and values of the Westar uh, group, which also takes these texts and approaches them critically. Um, yeah, I know a lot of people are, are afraid to think critically about texts they revere as sacred. Um, I guess I would just sort of hold up what I think as a model and, and when I teach, even though I teach New Testament, I I always like to hold up uh, literature from the Hebrew Bible in which the authors of this literature are very self-critical, right? The stories they tell about David mm. are remarkably mm -hmm. critical of David, right? You know, David the adulterer, David the murderer, or David, you know, who fails this way and that way, or about the children of Israel as, you know, grumbling in the desert. Very, very negative uh, uh, portraits of their own peoples. I would argue that it is a sign of maturity uh, of a people, uh, this willingness to look at one's own stories and to include uh, negative uh, portraits as well as positive. That is, to look at the whole story, warts and all. And I think that mature Christians would also do well to be able to look at our own scriptures and our own history in that way, identifying parts of it that have done damage. Uh, and so... 
um, yeah, I guess I, I recognize that uh, being critical of a sacred tradition is difficult, but especially in our world, when sacred traditions have stirred up so much violence, I think we need to prophetically stand up and, and look at these scriptures as a whole, um, and um, in, including parts that, that are disturbing. Shelley Matthews, my guest on Religion for Life, she's the author of the Acts of the Apostles, Taming the Tongues of Fire. Thank you, uh, Dr. Matthews, for being with me today. Thanks, John. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schock. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. More information about Religion for Life can be found at religionforlife.com. You can find links to podcasts there. Also, follow us on Twitter, uh, like us on Facebook, Listen to us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. Be well. Be well.